Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Yeah, you, you kind of had to start that way, didn't you? I mean, yeah. there's no other way to start the Poltergeist Actually, episode. Actually, if I'm going to be correct, she says they're here, so huh. it'd be we. Oh, we, oh cause we're, we're here for episode four. Of Dumpster Fire Cinema. Yeah, man, let's get this Dumpster Fire started. episode four of dumpster fire cinema my name is jordan with my amazing co-host hi i'm aaron hi aaron nice to meet you (laughs) good to see you at last at last (laughs) (laughs) and we are going to be talking about poltergeist this is probably my favorite scary movie of probably all time it's not really scary to me anymore but it's fun and it's a really good movie and i can watch it a lot of times it is a really fun movie. I've seen it yeah. like a bajillion times, and uh, it kind of never gets old. It's a good It's a good flick. It is a good flick. It's right, it's right up there in my top horror films. I can't say it's my favorite, but it's it's up there. Yeah. Well, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's it's got Steven Spielberg written all over it as far as, like, yeah. the characterization and the way it's shot and the music and the noises. Like, it's all just, This know. is without a doubt a Steven Spielberg joint. Well, right, right. Yeah. But in reality, it was directed by Toby Hooper. Yep, Toby so, Hooper, who I love. Yeah, uh, directed some uh, some really cool movies, uh, Life Force, mm-hmm. which you hadn't seen. Mm-mm. You need to see Life Force. It's so good. It's like a '70s film about space vampires. Um, oh yeah, you told me about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it. It doesn't sound good, but it's a B movie and it's a canon film. Do you know anything about uh, canon films, Golem Globus? No. Uh, uh, Canon Films is a a company made by these two guys, Menachem Golem and some other fucking guy that's less famous. (laughs) They're just low-budget films uh, from the 70s, exploitation films. These guys, like, cranked out, like, 200 movies over the course of four or five years. Wow. It's kind of crazy. Holy crap. Uh, So, yeah, but this was one of their finer movies, Life Force. And it was Toby Hooper. Also, Toby Hooper did... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is the shit. You know, he did the 1974 and the 2003 remake. Yeah, I did know that. Mm-hmm. I saw the 2003 remake. I kind of liked it. See, I'm I'm such a chicken. Like, I, I got through the 1974 version only by, like, the skin of my teeth. I was watching through my fingers and just kind of, like, covering my ears so I didn't have to hear all of the screaming and... Which is funny because I love scary movies, but, te- like, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just like too real to me for me to be able to just sit back and relax and be like, oh, this is a good scary movie. Like, no, it's it's too. It's real. incredibly tense. Yeah, and brutal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of one of the things with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it's just it's just batshit crazy, outlandish, just insanity that's what i love so much about it yeah toby hooper also did a tv movie called salem's lot which if you're not a stephen king fan then it really won't mean a whole lot to you but it means a lot to me because salem's lot is a fantastic book salem's lot was actually a really good movie i mean it was made for tv but it was it was really good it's about vampires it's like the only stephen king movie i haven't seen yeah yeah you should it's it's really good it's real creepy i read i did read the book it's fantastic yeah. But despite the fact that it was directed by Toby Hooper, the screenplay, it was written and it was produced by Steven Spielberg. And, and what's funny is, is that there was actually a lot of controversy surrounding that because everyone kind of thought that Toby Hooper was a little bit useless. Like, I think Zelda Rubenstein actually said that he can't even direct traffic. So. Oh, that's cold. It is cold. But, and, and I think Steven Spielberg kind of said something to that as far as like, Toby doesn't, ta- he's not a take charge kind of person. But then later on, he issued a statement apologizing and saying that Toby was valuable and he was, you know, pretty much just covering up that, that boo-boo with a bandaid and saying, sorry, Toby. He was doing E.T. at the same time. He was contractually obligated to do E.T. And so he couldn't direct uh, Poltergeist at the same time, which is why he got Toby Hooper. Um, and so there was a lot of like back and forth for Steven Spielberg. I mean, he only missed like a couple days on the set of Poltergeist. Um, Poltergeist came out, um, I believe, a week before E.T. came out. And they called it the Spielberg Summer um, because, I mean, they, they were within a week of each other and both of them were nominated for Oscars. And, and like it was it was a really big deal. But he was just under contract to do E.T. and he couldn't have a directing credit but he basically did everything. He did the special effects, which he got from uh, George Lucas, from Industrial George Lucas. Light and Magic. Yeah. He did a lot of the practical effects, the screenwriting. I mean, he was part of the the, the whole process. So I don't know. I, I, it would be hard for me to just pass that over if I was Toby Hooper. I'd be like, oh, yeah, feeling a little feel a little shunned. Yeah, but I mean, it's still it's it's good on his resume. He hasn't done much lately, has he? Uh, he's dead. <gasps> he died I'm uh, sorry, Toby a few months Hooper. ago. I'm sorry. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. This was Spielberg's first role as a producer. Yeah. Ever. And this is one of the rare films where he has a writing credit. Because most of his movies, he has Frank Marshall or Kathleen Kennedy or, or whoever his team is, they are usually writing the scripts and right. he just takes it from there. But this is one of his rare writing credits that he has. Do you know uh, Drew Barrymore auditioned for the role of Carol Ann? Yeah, yeah. She didn't get it, but she got in E.T., so yeah, it worked out for her either way. E.T. stole all the Oscars it from this totally film. It totally did, for special effects and for score. Yeah. The for- score was pretty fantastic in Poltergeist. I mean, it was. It's no E.T., but... Well, again, this is another one of those... Um, um, it was a rare film where he didn't use John Williams for nope. the score. He used Jerry Goldsmith, um, which, I mean, he's a fantastic composer as well. But obviously, John Williams kind of overshadows that with E.T. and Jurassic Park and Star Wars and yeah. all of those movies. So, But but Jerry Goldsmith is, um, he's, he's really fantastic. 
He did a great job on this film. Yeah. Oh, in my notes it says he quit because he's dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that <laughs> conversation. Was, yeah, because we were like, is he alive? And you were, you were like, no, he, he quit because he's dead. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. So, this movie is set in 1982. They are in California, a little subdivision called Cuesta Verde, which... Stereotypical suburban... Cookie cutter family... The casting was actually pretty good. Now, um, Steven Spielberg didn't want to use high A-list actors. He wanted to use pretty unknown actors because he wanted to make it as real as possible. And he felt like if they used somebody like Harrison Ford or Carrie Fisher or any of those people, that it would take away from the movie, which I think is I great. I think it's a wise choice. I think it's great because that was one of the notes that I wrote is that that this family – the kids especially were written so real. The dialogue is just fantastic, especially yeah. between the siblings and then between um, Diane and Steven, the the mom and dad. Like it's just it flows so well. And and when you look at this family, you think, oh, that could be me and my brother and sister. Like that could be my family right there. So I, I think the casting choices were very good with that. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny, you know. This movie starts out really, really lighthearted. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a huge turn that they make. Yeah. When things start getting a little crazy, this movie's PG rated, which yeah. a man rips his face off. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's not it's a real. It's really face, gross. Though. No, oh god, no, no. It's the worst <laughs> fucking dummy I've ever seen ever. It's terrible, but. It's definitely uh, not PG as we're well, used P- to seeing it. PG-13 was not a rating that existed in 1982. So they wanted it to be R, but they also wanted it to be like a special feature that they showed before E.T., which meant that they were going to have a lot of kids in the audience. So they had to make it PG in order to have the people stay for E.T. afterwards. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, huh. yeah. That, scare, that's... scare the hell out of those kids, yeah. and then stick around to watch a crazy alien. I mean this this movie is scary, and it's incredibly suspenseful. I mean, even if you don't get scared at movies, this movie will still have you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, it's just real, uh, real suspenseful, real intense. You see it happen a lot in the '80s, where the special effects look like they're drawn straight onto the film <laughs> with the color pencil. Yeah, and I don't know if that's how they do it. It's probably like some kind of celluloid animation oh kind yeah of stuff mm-hmm. um there's a scene where well it's the the infamous scene with the tv the entity or whatever shoots out of the tv and into the wall and it's just so terrible it, uh, it's like yeah, it now i remember is. at the time i thought it was really cool i i, I was a kid though mm-hmm. and and if you're a kid you'll never notice these things but it was pretty bad first time i saw this i was probably like nine or ten years old and it gave me nightmares for quite some time but going back and watching the movie as an adult you can see all of the fun little things that they tried to do for practical effects yes like the dummy okay so there there's a scene in the movie where it's kind of in the it's not really the climax but it's, it's about to become the climax of the movie one of the paranormal investigators um in the middle of the night everybody's sleeping there's no ghost activity happening he decides to get up go into a stranger's kitchen he just pulls a steak out of their fridge like like, a 15 dollars steak yeah and he just lays it on the counter i mean 
hello. He's going to pan fry a steak in the middle of the night. And yeah, he thinks like, nobody's going to notice. It's like three in the morning. I, You know, we were talking about this last night. And I think the only conclusion you could come to is that he brought that steak with him. I don't know. He I had don't, to have. But okay. Okay. Listen. Why would you bring a steak with you to a paranormal investigation? Why? I need a good solid reason. Maybe he just really likes steak. (laughs) I mean, that's that's a good enough reason, right? Uh, Maybe when he's up all night doing ghosty investigations, he needs some protein. And, you know, it was the 80s. We didn't have uh, snack bars and stuff. You make you scramble some eggs. You eat some peanuts like a whole steak. Like, what the hell? I mean, I could eat a steak anytime. But at the same time that he pulls that steak out, he shoves a drumstick into his mouth. And so it's not just the steak. He's just looking for stuff to eat. Yeah, fair fair enough on that one. You know, I'd believe he brought a steak, but I I don't think I could believe he brought a steak and a drumstick. I think that's just too much. (laughs) That's just way too playful. We can't have that. No, so he, okay, so he has the drumstick in his mouth. He puts the steak on the counter without a plate or anything, which grosses me out more than anything. Who does that? Whatever, whatever his name it's is, a Marty. Weird scene. Yeah, it's Marty. Marty, not Jeffrey Dahmer. Not Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, that's totally yeah. So not Jeffrey Dahmer is getting ready to cook this steak in the middle of the night, and he turns around and he sees the snake like inchworming across the counter. Yeah, th- I thought that looked really cool. And then more steak like starts leaking out of it. Yeah, it like pops up from the middle and it's just more steak coming up from the steak yeah. like it's steakception in there yeah it's totally what it was and then he like he's freaking out and he drops the drumstick on the ground and he when he looks with the flashlight it's got maggots all over it yeah oh no, um, that that had me going when i was a kid that's disgusting yeah that creeped me out big time so then he runs into the laundry room to throw up in the sink or whatever the light changes to orange and i guess it becomes like a fry cooker I guess. I don't know. Anyway. Is that what it is? I don't know because it sounds like there's sizzling noises. Like it turns orange like it's a microwave light. It sounds like he's cooking. Like something is cooking. That's what the sound is. Okay. And so he looks in the mirror and he sees that there's this giant cut on his face. And then he starts ripping his skin off like all the way down to the muscle and the bone. As a child, that was so disturbing. Like, yeah. you're like, what the hell? How is this even happening? What? He's ripping his face off. Like, I uh. think it's still fairly disturbing. I mean, even though it's a pretty obvious right. dummy. So the effect is, is that it's a dummy that has a painted like claymation face on it. And it's actually Steven Spielberg's hands that's ripping the the skin off. Like, that's. Yeah. So, but it's so funny. Is that now his because- acting debut? With his hands? Yeah. Spielberg's a hand actor. <laughs> he totally How about is. That? I mean, he ripped that flesh off good. Yeah. Oh, he did a great job. He did. When it flashes from Marty, when you see that it's Marty, but then it goes to the dummy, first of all, he has no neck. His neck disappeared. <laughs> it's the worst. It is the worst. Dummy. And then it looks like he's the crypt keeper. It looked like a paper mache dummy. Yeah. It was so bad. I mean, it, it was completely unbelievable. There was no articulation in the face. And it had this look, this stare, of course, because what else is it going to be able to do? Right. And and it was just the most awkward stare. They could have done 
a lot of things to make that look better. Well, they spent all of their money on that cartoon entity that came out of the television. No, I'll tell you where they spent their money on was the the spinning room. Oh, yeah. The room that turns. Okay, so in this movie, there are several instances where gravity changes or something is trying to inhale our actors into uh, through doors, basically. Mm-hmm. There's three, two or three scenes where this happens, and each one of those looks really, really cool because they were using a room that was able to be turned. Yeah. Uh, they did the same thing in Nightmare on Elm Street, and it looked really fucking cool when they did it on Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, as well. Yeah, it's a stationary camera, but the set, the whole set is rotating. And it's super cool because we watched that featurette on YouTube afterwards and just watching them spin that room around. And I'm just thinking about Joe Beth Williams like rolling around on this set in her underwear, just having a good old time, screaming her lungs out. That had to be a lot of fun to do. It probably was. Yeah. And they use that same concept for Inception because there's that scene where Arthur, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, is in the hotel, but it's spinning and he's having this fight scene and when you watch the special features you see it's just this giant tube and it's just turning over and over in the state like the camera is stationary and joseph gordon levitt's just running around like a hamster in a wheel like it's just it's so incredible the way that they're able to do that and when you're watching it your mind doesn't go oh that's a spinning room in your mind you're thinking she's being pulled up onto the ceiling by a spirit like it, it's very legit, and it's it's a super. Cool it's a very effect. convincing effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I was real impressed. Uh, I didn't know that about uh, Inception. I'm mm-hmm. gonna have to see if I can find that making of featurette. Oh yeah, it's it's super cool, and just just watching Joseph Gordon Love it, just like, and it's all choreographed. I mean, they had to choreograph the fight perfectly to go with each spin of the tube. Like it's just it's super cool. Um, I God, we, how would you like to try? I mean. Just the God. the amount of effort that you have to do to get, to do a shot like that mm-hmm. just makes me not ever want to shoot film ever again. <laughs> um, we totally skipped over the whole like plot of this movie. So if you haven't seen it, um, Poltergeist is basically about this family that lives in a house and that everything is normal, and they start to experience paranormal activity, and not just like a little bit a shit ton of paranormal activity. Yeah, there's no coy bullshit. Oh no. With the ghosts in this movie, they are overt. They're not trying to be sneaky. They're not playing at all. When she said that they're here, I mean, she meant it. Yeah. They are Once fucking she said here. They're here. They, yeah. That was it. I mean, they never made any attempts to hide themselves. You know, a lot of these movies a common trope is the little girl will be the only one that can see him. Yeah. You know, and everyone else just thinks she's crazy or thinks she's a kid or it'll be the mom and, you know, all that. But in this one, they just right off the bat, wall to wall, ghosty action. Yeah. And then um, about a quarter of the way through the movie, she gets taken into the spirit dimension. And then we spend the rest of the movie with them trying to get her out. They have a team of paranormal investigators come come to their house. They have a psychic medium come to their house and and it's just the whole thing i mean it's it's hard to just sit here and just go oh it's a ghost story because it's so much more than that like it's not just a ghost it's all of the ghosts yeah it's it's like every (laughs) ghost they okay so basically this movie serves to 
show you the dark side of suburban sprawl and Mm -hmm. good old-fashioned American family uh, life, middle-class life, and it's got to see the underbelly because all the houses were built on an Indian burial ground. They they left the bodies, but they moved the headstones. You only moved the headstones! You only moved the the headstones! You son of a bitch! Oh, you only moved the headstone. So Mr. Teague, man. Mr. Teague is the big slime ball in this movie. Is he our yeah. big bad? Well, he's just an he's idiot. Not. He's he's just he's a just big asshole. Idiot. He just I he's mean greedy. They're they're a real estate company that's that's trying to get as many houses built in the best place possible at the best price possible. So it was gonna cost money to move all of those bodies to a different place. And so they were like, Well, we'll just move the headstones nobody's gonna notice that we've got 300 to 500 dead bodies underneath their houses like that's the whole thing is it is that he doesn't realize which i say he mr freeling played by um craig t nelson he realizes halfway through the movie what's going on and we realize that they are being haunted by all the ghosts like it's like the voltron of ghosts like the, all the ghosts came together and made a giant ass ghost that terrorized this family. I mean, I'm only thinking of the therapy bills that would oh, come yeah. from an experience like that. No kidding. I mean, I've never I've never had a paranormal experience before. So to look at this and and because you hear people say, Oh, well, I've seen a ghost or I've had a ghostly experience or whatever. These people, they have it all. Every single bit of paranormal experience happens in their house. They've got floating toys. They've got disembodied voices, which creeps me right out. That's like probably the scariest thing about scary movies that I hate is the disembodied voices. Um, the stakeception that happens. You've got, yeah. you've got, um, you've got the tree. You've got the it's, giant ass tree. Crazy, just spooky as fuck tree that's right outside their window for some reason. Well, he. He explains to Robbie, the son, he says that tree's been there a very long time and I built the house next to it so it could protect it. And my only thought is, dude, if that tree goes, it's taking your whole house with you. It's not That's protecting true. anybody. Well, no, it, it fucking grabbed Robbie and yeah. ripped him through the window. Well, and <laughs> that's kind of how everything starts because, you know, we're having the experiences of, you know, the chairs moving in the kitchen and the forks bending, which let me tell you, the first time that I saw those chairs moving around, I'd be like, nope, we are leaving. We are leaving. I'm not going to stay here and find out what happens next. But she's all like, oh, we're experiencing a different side of nature that tries yeah, to kill us. Yeah, she's got like and- a racetrack set up in the kitchen. Yeah. And they're they're letting the ghost push Carol Ann around the house. Yeah, like a different side of life that's kidnapping your children and trying to kill you. Like, that's not a side of nature that I ever want to experience. No. Thank you very much. That's Yeah, I thought that was pretty weird. That's another thing that you don't see in any horror movies. Usually uh, the uh, mother in the situation is the first one to lose their mind. And yeah. she just kind of thought it was cool. They smoke weed. They do. Coolest parents ever. Yeah. Which I didn't realize until a couple years ago that's what they were actually doing. Really? Maybe, maybe my adolescent mind blocked out that, that vision of them maybe i thought it was cigarettes but as i got being an adult and watching it i'm like they're totally smoking weed like they're toking it up yeah they are they don't give a shit either robbie comes in the room and she's just like uh 
takes one big quick hit out off of it before she puts she it totally up. Does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, these are some stoners. They're very progressive parents. You they know, really they, are. They don't spank. They're very. They're. They make a good point of letting you know they don't spank. Yeah. So it's it's just a very it's a very which interesting... was really weird for the eighties. By the way, I just want to point out. Yeah. Because. That wasn't a taboo subject in the 80s. Well, and we were talking about how we thought that they were young parents. They were coming out of the 70s, for sure. Yeah. Probably the 60s. And so they are probably young parents who've been together since they were teenagers. And they're raising three kids and they're going through life together. And so they just, you They're know, just doing the same stuff they did when they were teenagers. Yeah, except now they have kids yeah. and responsibilities and... This is a perfectly <laughs> logical situation in this day and age. It is. I mean, this is this is a very typical situation. Yeah. But back then, it was pretty weird. Yeah. To see suburban white people smoking weed on film was weird back then. Is it just me, or did you want to, like, witness them buying the weed? Like, I want to see <laughs> Craig T. Nelson buying yeah, a no, bag of weed. I don't see Coach driving downtown... <laughs> picking up a bag of weed he gets it from like uh he gets it from one of his old buddies from high school that never oh. grew up <laughs> i just had this image of them just like driving around town and like okay kids we're gonna make a stop and they just like <laughs> they're on some shady corner and diane gets out and she's like all right how much for an eighth or whatever it is it's just one of those things where it's just fun to imagine this family doing other things outside of what this movie provides because they're that real that's the sign of a good movie because you want to know what they were like before all of this happened and you want to continue to see them afterwards. Like you, you want nothing but good things for this family. Like, yeah, really. they really are uh, very likable. Although um, Diane does have a bit of a lying problem. She said goldfish grow up to be sharks, which isn't true well... in case anybody out there is wondering. It's not true. Goldfish do not grow up to be sharks. Well, okay. Yes, that's I was that's I true. was concerned. I've been concerned about this the whole <laughs> the whole time. Well, I mean, Carol Ann was pretty much dumping the whole container of food into the <laughs> fish bowl. Did you know um the the actress Heather O'Rourke, she got to keep those goldfish after they were done shooting? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So yeah, going back to the whole tree thing, fun fact. The the tree and then the stupid ass clown. Oh yeah, that fucking clown. <sighs> Those were those were both childhood fears of Steven Spielberg's. So that's why he wanted to put those in the movie and, and, you know, have those be a big deal. So after, you know, the chairs are moving and they're all very concerned, but there's nothing serious happening yet. The tree is the pivotal point when everything starts to happen because these daggum Voltron ghosts are smart enough to think, well, we're going to distract the family by the giant tree taking the sun. We're going to still care a land while everyone's downstairs with Robbie. Like, they actually had to plan this. I guess maybe they were just gathering strength or something. I don't know. Because they'd lived in this house for a while. I mean, this neighborhood wasn't brand new. They were building a new subdivision. Uh, they yeah. have this whole thing where they talk about it. So that neighborhood, it's it's getting a little older, they say. Uh, it's lived in. Yeah. So why now all of a sudden? I just had a crazy thought. What if it was the goldfish souls that tipped the scale <laughs> and made it so that they're powerful enough to invade the house? I mean, that's not a crazy idea. Honestly. It's the best one I got. Didn't a bird die too? Yeah, the canary died. So the canaries and the goldfish. Wait, the goldfish didn't die. They did It was die. the canary that died. The canary died. The canary died. And mom, 
tried to flush it down the toilet. Why would you flush it down? <laughs> that can't be good for your septic system. That, that whole scene, all. that whole sequence existed so that Carol Ann could see her. It was such a transparent plot device. And then she buries her in a cigar box and she puts a blanket for when it's nighttime, a picture for when he's lonely, a rose because the box smelled funny, and then part of a Twizzler in case he gets hungry. And then they bury him in the backyard, which... And bought a goldfish that same day. Man, okay. mm -hmm. My parents would have been like, well, I guess that's it for pets now. (laughs) But the fact that they went out the same day and got her two goldfish... Like, those are some spoiled-ass kids, man. Let me tell you. But no, you're right, because Teague, his boss, kind of made, he made a comment about how Carol Ann was born in that house. So she's, it's at least five years old. Oh. Yeah. So. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Maybe that's why the ghosts went after her. That's what I was thinking. That was my theory, is that because she's the youngest and because she has a connection, like a physical, biological connection with the house is why they wanted her. Um, you know, and they make statements about how she's the brightest light and she's got this living life force that's so strong and that's why they're all attracted to her and, and all of those things like that. So the family's kind of run out of options. So they go to this paranormal investigation team and they come to the house. Ghost hunters. Ghost hunters. Kind of a goof troop of ghost hunters. Yeah. Bunch of amateurs. You've got Dr. Lesh. They're, they're frauds, basically. Well, I wouldn't say frauds up to that point of going to the Freeling's house, they had never really had an experience before. Like, well, there's Dr. Lesh, there's Ryan, and then there's Marty. Ryan makes this comment about how they saw this matchbox car roll across the floor and the duration was seven hours. It was fantastic. And Mr. Freeling's like, yeah, fantastic. And he opens the door to Carolyn's room and there's all these disembodied voices and laughter and music. like. And there's like furniture yeah. swirling around in there, so, floating. It was a really cool scene, actually. So he, he said without saying, your matchbox car can go to hell because you've never seen anything like this before. Although, if we're going to keep going with the whole, you know, life after the movie thing, this experience probably would have made their careers yeah i mean they have all the evidence they need to break that wide open and make them the most famous paranormal investigators probably since um the warrens yeah probably since the warrens so like it's it's just an interesting subject to get into i love ghost stories i love the paranormal i think it's super fun and dr lesh touches on the difference between a haunting and a poltergeist she says a haunting usually has to do with a place And it can last for years and years and years. And it usually has to do with something about the house. Something happened there that was traumatizing. And it's just kind of part of the history of the house now. But a poltergeist is more of a temporary thing. She was saying it could last a couple months. It could last to a couple years. And it's usually about a specific person. Which at the time they were like, oh, it's about Carol Ann. But then later on when we find out that all those bodies are buried underneath their house... I would say that'd be more of a haunting, right? Yeah, definitely is a haunting. Yeah. I mean, there were poltergeist tendencies that were happening, but it was more of a haunting. But again... Well, I mean, but hold on. You have to really call into question the validity of anything that any of these people say. Even Tangina doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Because, you know, she comes in and, you know, this house is clean. But it's not. (laughs) It's not. Shouldn't she know that? 
Well, Shouldn't she know what's going on in this house? See, I thought about that, though, because I think maybe what happened at, you know, with her cleansing the house, I think that the spirits, maybe they were like, all right, guys, back off until she's gone. And then when she's gone, we can fuck with these people again. I think it's more along the lines of that, because I was wondering that, too. Like, why wouldn't you stick around to make sure I don't know. I didn't really go that deeply into the plot as to why the spirits came back, especially if she thought they were clean. But man, they came back with a vengeance. Yeah, they did. They came back and completely imploded the entire house. Man, I hate it when my house folds in on itself. It's the worst. The weather. The fucking ghosts were affecting the weather. Everything. These were some really powerful. I'm telling you. I don't know what the different levels of ghosts are, but you're going super cyan if you're controlling the fucking weather. That's a powerful ghost. Well, I was, but again, Voltron ghosts, like all the ghosts came together to make a giant ghost that, I mean, by the end of the movie, the whole neighborhood was fucked up. Yeah. It was like just complete destruction. Like the, like fires coming out of the ground and the, the roads are breaking apart. Yeah. I mean, like, it's just, it's total, it's total fucking chaos. And so, but it's maybe it's just a culmination of all the ghosts together. They're like, all oh, right, we've had enough of this. Yeah, no, they clearly had enough of whatever it was. But apparently it was not enough because they went on to make two more of these movies, which were not that great. Yeah, the second one was pretty creepy. Uh, you had that creepy old guy. Uh, yeah. But when the third one came out, I was like seven years old and I was aware of it. Yeah. Uh, it was something that people had been talking about. And of course, the star Heather O'Rourke uh, sadly passed away. And then that became part of the hype for this movie. Yeah. Heather O'Rourke passed away from intestinal stenosis. They thought she had the flu. And then she went to the hospital because she was going into cardiac arrest. Basically, her bowels just stopped working. Her whole body just stopped working. And she was 12 years old. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It Very really sad. is. Like she didn't, she finished production of Poltergeist 3, but she didn't get to see it come to fruition. Like she died before it, before it came out, which actually leads me to a very interesting topic because there is a rumor about how there was a curse, a poltergeist curse because, um, because of Heather O'Rourke dying at such a young age, the other incredibly incredibly tragic thing that happened was um the girl that played dana uh dominique dunn she was strangled to death by her boyfriend the same year that poltergeist was coming out so she didn't get to see it come to fruition either it's horrible it's horrifying she just was strangled to death in her driveway by her boyfriend and heather rourke and dominique dunn were both um buried in the same cemetery in la which is that's pretty weird. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Um, and then, you know, some of the actors talked about how they kind of had some paranormal experiences. Like Jo Beth Williams, she said that every time she went home, all of her pictures would be askew. Like they'd be off to the side. And she'd fix them. But I didn't they'd go, see that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And then I think Zelda Rubenstein said that she had a, a premonition about her dog dying. And then like the next day, her mom called her and told her that her dog died. There's just all these weird things. And several of the other actors passed away. Like the the creepy old guy, he died. Um, and then the, the guy who played the uh, Native American man in Poltergeist 2, he passed away from complications due to a heart, uh, I think a heart and lung transplant. Yeah. Um, 
So there's just all of these things that kind of follow the movie. So Snopes was saying that there's not enough evidence to really prove that there was a curse because the the Dominique Dunn thing and the Heather O'Rourke thing was those were kind of I mean those were weird and those were unexpected but the other deaths and the other occurrences were just kind of uh, coincidental to the movie coming yeah, out. Yeah, I mean the odds aren't just great uh, for this series of events, but they're not insurmountable either. The time between the deaths, you know, there was six years between the two major deaths. I mean, yeah, that that really does kind of take away a lot of the it's a curse. Well, but uh, I'll tell you one thing that's really good publicity. Yes, That's it is. Great. I mean, it's it's horrible because you're you're basing it off of people's deaths, but at the same time, well, when this uh, when Poltergeist three came out, that was discussed. Mm-hmm. That was something that people were talking about at the time. I remember hearing yeah. they were milking uh, Heather O'Rourke's death for publicity. So what was the what was the thing you were looking up about the skeletons? Okay, so the reason why this curse is supposed to uh, be on this film is because they used real skeletons in the climactic scene in the pool. Yeah. uh, Where Diane gets thrown out of the window into the pool and tries to, she's trying to escape. All these skeletons kind of are popping up from underwater and just, uh, it's actually a really cheesy scene. They're all just kind of floating around her and every now and then somebody will push one of them at her and it's just really cheesy. But those are real skeletons and this is confirmed. And they didn't tell Joe Beth Williams until after it was shot, which is probably yeah. smart because I would not have done it. No. If they had been like, all right, we want you to get into this pool and these skeletons are going to pop up and they're real skeletons. I'd be like, ha, 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 see you later. I don't think so. That's yeah. bad juju. That's got bad juju written yeah, all over no. it. I'm not a superstitious person, but I'm not fucking doing that. No. Period. No. That's, I mean, come on. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think they like stole them or anything i think no, obviously no. They, they had permission. they didn't steal them they were actually legally acquired uh they were skeletons that were sold for medical research the gentleman who actually acquired these has gone on record saying that yeah they were medical uh skeletons that were uh, from they said they were sourced in india i want to be in the room where they're having this discussion about okay what do you, how do you want to do the skeletons well we don't have a budget for fake skeletons, guys. So you're going to have to come up with something. Oh, I know. Let's get real skeletons and curse the whole thing. We're, we're living in a time of like the best practical effects ever. You couldn't like That's true. make them. Industrial Light and Magic didn't have some skeletons laying around. I'm saying, man. That's what I'm saying. ILM was all over this film, too. The stench of George Lucas was all over this film. Oh, it totally was. If you was. look in... Uh, if you go into Robbie and uh, and Carol Ann's room, there was just tons of Star Wars shit everywhere. Oh, yeah. It was. Yeah. And Star Wars came out the next year. It was Return of the Jedi, I believe. I'm assuming that George Lucas did Steven Spielberg a favor and helped him out with the special effects in yeah. this movie in exchange for that. For putting Star Wars shit all over Robbie's I'll room. scratch your back if you scratch mine. Yeah. Type thing. Yeah. A little yeah. quid pro quo. And, you know, they're buddies. Spielberg and Lucas are, are ride or die. It, it's no surprise there. Well, fun fact about the whole pool scene. 
Um, Joe Beth Williams was hesitant uh, about shooting the scene because there was going to be electrical wires everywhere. Yes. And so she was terrified of getting electrocuted. So Steven Spielberg actually got, got in, there in there with her. And he was basically like, uh, now if the light fails, we'll both fry. So yep. after that, like she was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it then. So that speaks to his character a lot. He's a director that cares. Like, you know, the scene where um, Carol Ann is holding on to the headboard. There's, there's two of them, but I think it's the very first one. And there's the, the all the wind and everything. And what I read was, is that's the only scene where she was truly terrified. And when they finally got finished doing that, he like took her in his arms and was like, You're, you won't have to do that again. Yeah, like, they got a, they actually got a stand in for the second time they did it or used a dummy or something. I don't know. But like it was, it was enough that I, when I read that, I was like, oh, he actually cares about his actors. Like he's not just some, some yeah, controlling and, a-hole that's like, no, no, you have to do it over and over and terif- be terrified. And you have to realize this was in the 1980s when that kind of shit, he could have been really horrible to her. Yeah. You know, they were exploiting children in Hollywood in the 1980s. Oh, big time. Yeah. And uh, it's it's good to see that that wasn't the case on this set. Yeah. Um, another another kind of fun fact. I, I have a lot of pages of fun facts. So here we go. Heather O'Rourke, the girl who plays um, Carol Ann, Steven Spielberg saw her eating lunch with her mother at the MGM commissary, and he wanted her to audition. Now, she almost didn't get it because her initial audition, she couldn't stop laughing. But he saw something in her that was very special and he wanted to audition her again. And so in the second audition, he just made her scream and scream and scream until she cried. And that's basically how she got the part. Huh? So weird. Well, yeah. she's, she's adorable. She's so cute. I can totally see why Spielberg would want her in the film. Oh yeah. She's even little... though she might not have been the best actress, although she did a great job in the movie. She did. She did. She was fantastic. And she is just cute as a button. And if you if you hit her with the strobe light, she looks creepy as hell. Yeah, she does. How about the 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 construction worker sexual oh. harassment going on? Well, I I okay. So the times that we're in watching this that scene, you have to take yourself out of 2017. You have to you have you to do. think about you do. 1982. These guys. Okay, so they the Freelings are having a pool put in. And these construction workers are at their house and they're digging in the into the ground. And the daughter, Dana, is going off to school. And the construction workers stop everything that they're doing. And they're like, I love you. I love you. I love that skirt. And she very <laughs> so politely crazy. takes the time to flip them off. Like, she just, without hesitation, does this funny little Macarena dance thing. And then she flips them off. And the whole time, her mom is watching this, and she's just like smiling. She's like, "That's my girl." Yeah, like, and it's just a completely different time because had we been in 2017, I'm sure the mom would have run out there and been like, "I'm calling the cops," and you know, yeah, it would have been a whole thing. But oh yeah, it'd be on national news. Well, and the fact that they took the time to write that into the script because it was funny. Like watching it, you're not like, "Oh, that's disgusting." I mean, it kind of is a little bit because she's obviously very young. She's 15, and they are grown-ass men yes but it's done in such a way that i don't know it's just more funny than it is disgusting i don't know i thought it was pretty gross (laughs) any shenanigans (laughs) aside those are some creeps okay okay so this guy is like hanging into her kitchen from the window and he's like drinking her coffee and eating food out of the pan and he's just like that's great coffee miss freeling and she's like all right bluto give me my cup 
Like, standards were just so low. (laughs) Well, I think that the thing was that Bluto was a good friend of the family. Like an uncle type. Not if he's hitting on like Dana like that, though. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it just seems seems that way. Seems like they're real close. Uh, I don't think so. That's that makes it even worse in my mind. Like, okay, so you're super close with the family, but you're letting your crew and you catcall this 15 year old girl. Well, I mean, you're bound to be pretty fucking close if you can stick your head in the window and eat the <laughs> eat her mom's food. I mean, these are these are their friends. Well, but you also have to think about the fact that this is not a very big town either. I'm sure that other people have used him and he's been recommended. And I'm not thinking that he's just some some random pool construction guy. I think everybody knows him. It's just, you know. Marty got bit by a ghost. He did. You don't see people get bit by ghosts in horror movies. You don't. You don't. But the psychic Tar- Targina? Tar- Targina? What's her name? Tar... I'm just going to call her Zelda. The psychic Zelda, uh, (laughs) she talks about this being the beast. And so for this thing, whatever it is, this Voltron ghost to take a bite out of Marty. I mean, it's different, though, because most ghosts don't do physical harm. I mean, most of the time you don't see them doing physical harm, but it's different for sure. I like it, though. Like, it adds kind of this element. But then you see Ryan, like wiping ectoplasm off of him he's just like running his fingers through the slime and he's like playing with it like i love ryan so much because he's more excited than he is scared the ball comes through the portal and he like he's like kiss my ass yeah so everybody else is terrified like they're all just like flipping out and he's just like mr science man just having a good old time with these ghosts like he does not care one bit there's one scene where he's listening to music and he's just drawing. Like, he just doesn't. Like, he is not scared at all. Yeah, he's way into this thing. I would want Ryan around, for sure. He'd keep everything cool. Well, talking about weird things that kind of happen in the movie. So, about 34 minutes into the movie, there's this weird jump cut. Like, when they're in the kitchen and she's showing him all the, like, the moving chairs and, and Carol Ann moving across the floor. And then it jump cuts from that point to them going to their neighbor's house to ask Ben, their neighbor, what if they've had any weird occurrences at right. their house. Well, the reason they did that is because um, Craig T. Nelson's character, Stephen, makes a crude statement about Pizza Hut. He, not crude. He just basically says, I hate Pizza Hut. And Steven Spielberg was so worried about offending them that they cut it. But they cut it in a way that it was just kind of awkward. Because, Jarring. Yeah, because at one point they're just like, they're all talking at the same time and everything's excited. And then the next thing you know, they're at the neighbor's house. Like, it's just very abrupt. So uh, that was interesting to know because I noticed that when we watched it. I was like, why do they do it that way? But there was probably no other way to cut it without offending Pizza Hut. Well, oh, no. Can't offend Pizza Hut. Can't, can't sponsor us, Pizza Hut. We love you. Your pizza's great. Yum, yum. Oh, I fucking love Pizza Hut. <laughs> Nothing goes better with Dumpster Fire Cinema than a nice, hot, Pizza Hut pizza. Oh, man, now I'm hungry. I haven't eaten dinner yet. Like, I'm hungry. I want pizza. You want Pizza Hut? Yeah, I'm a Give us money, Pizza Hut. Yeah. Or just pizza. It's <laughs> fucking good. Zelda Rubenstein is amazing. She is really good. She is so good. What else has she done? I don't remember seeing her in anything. I think she was in Poltergeist, too, but she actually claimed to be, like, a real psychic. Like that's, Was that her thing? Yeah. She, was she not an actress? 
I don't actually know because looking at her IMDb page, like she doesn't have a whole lot else. Yeah. Well, she gives this long speech about souls and shit like that and the light. And it's so good. God, that's my favorite all-time favorite scene. Remember when we were watching it? I was like, this is my all-time favorite scene because she does this monologue talking about these souls that are trying to go towards the light and how Carol Ann is the brightest light that there is and they're attracted to that. And it's all very like pleasant and pretty and beautiful. And then it takes this escalating turn to where she's like, hold on to yourselves. You know, when she starts to talk about the beast, the evil thing that Carol Ann sees it like it, like it's a child. It speaks to her like a child. She thinks it is another child and it lies to her and all like, I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. Like it's, it's so well done. It's just this pivotal moment where you're like, holy crap. Yeah. Like it's so well done. And the other part, Dr. Lesh decides to bring in this psychic to try and cleanse the house. So the scene is set up where everybody is sitting down on the ground and Zelda is, Zelda Rubenstein is standing up and she's, she's basically giving this monologue and everybody's faces is just pure terror. It's so good, especially Jo Beth Williams. I wrote that in my notes that she did so good in this movie. She was great in this movie. She was great. And the other thing that I wrote about this scene, and it kind of, I, I read about this too, is that um, she's, Diane's wearing white in this scene. I don't think they did that accidentally. They did that on purpose because when she finally is, she crosses over, they, they do this weird thing where they go into the light. Diane has this rope around her. She's going to go get Carol Ann and she comes through the other side downstairs and they're covered in this strawberry jam. Right. Goo stuff. Ectoplasm. Ectoplasm, which it's like a membrane. Like they are coming through a membrane is basically what was happening. And they're put into the tub and Steve's trying to like wake them up and trying to wash them off. And it's very much like a rebirth. And that was the yeah. whole point of it is is her wearing white and holding Carol Ann like that. And Carol Ann very much looks like an infant. Like it's all about like rebirth and coming back to life. It's just the, the symbolism for that is just super cool to me. You have to really sit down and think about that thing to be able to portray it in a way that everybody's going to understand. Cause it's not just, Oh, she's saving her daughter. Like this is her baby. This is her, her little girl. And she's going into unknown depths to, to, to save her. Um, and as, and her acting in that situation is really good. Yeah. You know, a lot of the times actresses that play grieving mothers are, they do it wrong. You know, they're either too over the top or, you know, it's never just right. And, she did fantastic. I mean, she best, did best distraught mother in a horror movie ever. Well, I always and because I'm a mom, the scene where, you know, they hear the monster, they hear Carol Ann moving across the house and yeah. she comes downstairs and she moves through Diane's body. That scene always makes me cry because she's smelling her baby. And I mean, having a baby yourself you know what they smell like and just having that scent all over you i just always get like super weepy and i'm like oh i want to hug my kids it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking at the same time because she wants to have carolyn in her arms and they're so close they're so close to her but they just can't like she's out of arm's reach and it's just it's really heartbreaking 
The other thing that I noticed, and maybe nobody else notices this about the movie, but I feel like everybody psychologically ages in this movie. Because again, we start out, everything's bright and happy. We're having Sunday football with the guy who rides in with beer on his bike, which I don't understand. That is just comical. It he's, is. He's walking in the in the room to get to football and he's got beer squirting everywhere. Can't can't miss football. And of course, the, the whole drama with the remote control, mm-hmm. which is not a thing that really happens. Yeah, uh, I don't know how that would even be a thing. Your, yeah, your remote they, they control's made, on the same channel. The point being, they made it, uh, Spielberg, <laughs> I like how we're just not even mentioning Toby <laughs> Hooper here. <laughs> Spielberg uh, really tried to make the beginning of this movie into the beginning of E.T. Right. He wanted, he filmed this movie the same way as he did E.T. only instead of it going into this adventure film, it went into this horror film. Right. You know, everything starts out bright and happy. Everybody looks young and fresh and, you know, but as the movie goes along, everybody's tired and exhausted. But Diane starts dressing differently like she dresses older. Same for Steve and all the like everybody else. Like they just kind of psychologically age. And the thing about it is, is that this movie takes place over like a month. Yeah. It's a long time. Like, it's not just a couple of days. Like, it is a long period of time. And so I'm just thinking to myself, like, if it were me in that situation, I don't know if I could stay sane. Ugh. Like I said, I've never experienced anything paranormal, but something to that level, I don't know if I could keep my marbles all in one place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you also see as the movie progresses, it gets darker and darker and the color palette turns completely blue. Yep. They really drive home the the turn of the mood and atmosphere of the film and and of the characters. Well, it's it makes for good pacing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's a scary movie, but it doesn't follow a lot of the same tropes and cliches that other scary movies do. In most scary movies, you see like uh, an unhappy family or some trauma happened or the marriage is bad or the kids are bad. But it doesn't start out that way. Like everybody's happy. Yeah, Dana's kind of a troublemaker, but she's a teenager, you know? Yeah. And everybody's happy. The marriage is good. Everybody's, everything is fine. And so for this to happen to that kind of family, you're like, oh, shit. Like, holy crap. Nobody dies in the movie. There's minimal injuries that happen. You know, there's not a whole lot of gore. There are some jump scares, but they're not. They're not the way jump scares work these days. No. They're, they're more of a uh, horror cues than jump yeah. scares. Yeah, I just think about the scene where she, where Diane goes upstairs and she's at Caroline's door and she's like knocking and she says hello and she opens it and they scream and she closes yeah. it real quick. Like you're not expecting that at all. And right. when it happens, you're like, oh, oh my God. But again. I, I kind of felt the same way when the piano started casually following uh, Steve around the room. Yeah. It, it's just something. Really creepy about that. But it it doesn't follow the same scary movie formula. No, not at all. It invented a new scary movie formula. It did. It really did. And even even though we go on to have two more movies that involve this family, it's not a happy ending, but everybody's together and they're alive. You don't see that very much in scary movies. Like somebody's dead or somebody's gone or somebody's gone crazy. Like, yes, their house folded into itself and their neighborhood has gone to shit and they're staying at a holiday inn and it ends with this pretty song 
Like it's yeah. very like yeah. lullaby-ish. I think it adds to the disquiet that comes from it because nothing ever gets resolved. There's no resolution. The ghosts don't go away. The The family just leaves and they go to a hotel. And when it ends on that, that happy note, that happy lullaby song, you're like, what did I just watch? Like, why is it ending like this? I, I don't think you could have ended it any other way that would have made sense. So, yeah. And then they lived happily ever after with nightmares for the rest of their yeah, lives. Yeah, they got in the station wagon and they got the fuck out of there. They did. I mean, they just booked. Fire hydrants were exploding with yeah, fire. That's right. People yeah. were, bodies were coming out of the ground. I mean, it was basically the apocalypse for this neighborhood. They went to the Motel 6 and they pushed the TV out. And that was it. Yeah. That was uh that was Poltergeist. That was Poltergeist. It's a really good movie. It is I think really that, good. I think that this film holds up even today. There's some shoddy special effects, but the way it was shot, the way it looks, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, uh, I don't know, maybe it was the remaster that I watched, but it, the lighting and, um, the way the shots were set up is still the way it's done to this day. Uh, this movie's kind of timeless. Well, and you just can't the 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 scene where she's sitting in front of the television and then she just turns around and she's just like, "They're here!" Like that's the most classic. I don't know, just the cl- most classic scene in a scary movie that I've ever seen. Like there's there's so many others out there. Obviously, you have classic horror movies that have very classic scenes, but that one that one sticks out in your mind. Uh, for me at least it sticks out the most um you know i think a a bit of the reason why that scene is so creepy is because that line there here was poorly 80 yard into the into the scene um what do you mean well they added it in the audio was not part of the original sound that they that they recorded you could tell if you watch your lips when uh when she says it, it doesn't match up at all. It was added in in post. Huh. And uh, and it makes for a bit of an uncanny effect. Yeah. And I think bit. that might have a little bit to do with why that is so unsettling. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was the highest grossing horror film of 1982, and it was the eighth highest grossing film of the year. So, I mean, it, it, stands, it stands the test of time, I feel like, when it comes to comparing it to other other scary movies and comparing it to how other films were made. I mean, I I think that you can put this up there with other, with the other Steven Spielberg films and, and really just, I mean, I I think it's up there. It did. It held its own against E.T. Which is saying a lot. Yeah. Yeah. E.T. was a phenomenon. Nothing, nothing like that. No, that to kind of, put it into perspective et the kind of fervor that you had around et when it came out was kind of the same as like the lord of the rings when they started doing that yeah it was very big it was huge well and you could tell that steven spielberg was so proud of poltergeist i mean he says something along the lines of you know if et was a whisper poltergeist was a bang yeah as far as it coming out like it's just i don't know it, it he's just so so proud of this movie and Again, it just makes me feel so bad for Toby Hooper because you just kind of forget about him because it's a Toby Hooper film. Well, sort of. Yeah, but uh, he still gets mentioned 
in the same breath as Spielberg when True. when you talk about Poltergeist. And Toby Hooper, uh, he isn't hurting for it. I mean, he's a legend in his own right, too. This is true. This uh, is true. To, he very prolific career. Yeah. here's We actually talked about this. This is kind of an interesting little, little side note. Uh, remember how um, Stephen is, when he's talking to Dr. Lesh at the college, he's telling them the ages, and he says that Diane is 32 and Dana is 16. That would have to mean that Diane had Dana when she was 16, 15, 15 or 16. Um, So I found an interesting theory on this um, is that many viewers interpret this to mean that Diane was only 16 when she gave birth to Dana. However, in the novelization of the of the film, it clarifies that Dana is actually Steve's second wife and that Dana is the daughter of his first marriage. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I don't know if I agree with that, though. I, I, I would much rather... I don't know why, but in my head, I would much rather believe that they're high school sweethearts and she just had Dana when she was very young. Like, it just... It speaks to their to their chemistry because they're very close. They don't really... They seem like they've known each other forever. Yeah. Like, they... They don't argue. They aren't. They're not a typical husband and wife team. It makes me happy to think that maybe Dana is just a love child that happened in the back of a car, you know, after a school dance or something. (laughs) Another interesting fact is that Stephen King was briefly approached to write the screenplay. And it would have been the first screenplay written by king but the parties couldn't agree to the terms how different of a movie would it have been if stephen king wrote the screenplay it had been a totally different movie for sure steven spielberg would have had a lot of creative control so if there was something that he didn't like he probably would have changed it however i'm a huge stephen king fan and so i'm just thinking to myself i think it would have been scarier I think the story there would have been a lot deeper of a plot as to why they're being haunted I think there might have been even a little bit more gore. I mean, not to say that he he just writes gore all the time, but he tends to go to things that are a little more bloody. So I think it just would have been a... It's hard to imagine. But it I would think have it, been much darker. I, yeah, I was just about to say that. I think it would have been a darker film. Absolutely a much darker film. I don't know. It's fun to imagine what that would have been like had Stephen King actually had the chance to write the screenplay for that. I mean, it's right up his alley, though. I mean, it's all kind of the same elements that he uses in his books and, and the screenplays that he has written, um, you know, little kids and scary ghosts and all of those things. So, but I, it definitely would have been a completely different movie. So in 1982, Stephen King had written Cujo, The Running Man, oh, and the first Dark Tower novel. Now we Ooh. know why they couldn't agree to the terms. Yeah. King was busy. He was very busy. And Wait. then, of course, the next year he did Christine Pet Cemetery and The Talisman, which is so good. Wait, are those screenplays or his actual books? These are books. Oh, okay, okay. I I don't think he wrote the screenplay for Cujo. I don't know why I was thinking that, but no, no, no. Uh, I don't. I don't think he wrote any screenplays, did he? Yeah, he did. He wrote the screenplay for the um, the Shining miniseries. There was a Shining miniseries. Uh, hell yeah! It's awesome. Because he he really does not agree with the movie. He didn't like Kubrick's. No, not at all. And so he decided. Well, he's to... wrong. Stephen King is wrong. Stephen King's wrong. Even though it's Stephen King's material. Yes, I stand by it. I stand by it. No, the miniseries is way better. It's way better. And he like because Stephen King took the time to write the screenplay. 
So. So fuck you. That's what you wanted to say. I, I can see it I in did. your eyes. <laughs> I did not. I did not. So another little fun fact. I don't know what number I'm on as far as fun facts go. But um, Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg, uh, when they were plotting out the screenplay, what they originally had or what they originally thought was going to happen was that Carol Ann was going to get killed in the first act and then haunt the house in the second. And they decided that that was too dark and they opted to have her kidnapped by the Voltron ghosts. Good choice. Yeah, I think so too. I think that would have been way too sad and too dark. Like the movie would have gone a completely different way if Carol Ann had actually died. They wouldn't have been able to do it uh, with that actress. They would have to get a far less cute little girl if they're going to kill her off. Yeah. You know what I mean? I agree with that. I agree. Because, I mean, if Carol Ann were killed, oh my God. I'd riot. Yeah. How dare you? People would hate the movie. People would walk out of the theater. Yeah. She's just too cute to kill. Hey, do you know what football game was playing at the beginning of the movie? No, I don't. It's the Los Angeles Rams versus the Saints. Um, It's a Monday night football game in 1980. So Really? It's... Not period accurate? No. Oh, and it was probably taped illegally. Yeah, <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, so there was actually a TV series that came out of this. It's called Poltergeist Legacy. It came out in 1996, and it focused on the paranormal. Um, it came out after Poltergeist 3 wrapped. Um, and although it has the Poltergeist name, it actually has nothing to do with the franchise. I've really? never, I've never seen or heard of it. I remember. I didn't even it. know it was a thing. I saw commercials and stuff for it, and I remember hearing news about it, but I never watched it. That's so. I weird. didn't have cable. Two person poll. So, Tangina talks about the Beast, which, in my mind, I keep thinking is Satan. Right. You know, or. Is it all the souls of the dead coming together to create a Transformers ghost? Or do you think that it's like individual ghosts that are haunting the house? My vote is that it is the Transformers ghosts. Like all of them together making a giant Voltron slash Transformer ghost that is mega terrible. The house though, it bleeds. It has goop. It's a it's alive. The house is alive. I don't think it's the house, though. I think it's all the ghosts underneath it. All the bodies of the soul, like all the souls of the bodies buried in the house. And now they built a neighborhood on top of them. Like, it's not the actual house. I think that this is one of those situations where an act of malice has created this entity of hate that has grown and festered and and taken over this this thing. I don't think it's necessarily the ghosts of the Native Americans that were uh, that were buried there, or I don't think it's Native the American devil. ghosts. Though. I definitely don't think it's the devil. But then, what is this beast they're talking about? Is that the poltergeist? Like, is it that there are so many souls and so many ghosts living in that house that they like activate they they bring to life the the poltergeist beast and that's what's actually what's haunting them or could it be a tulpa what the hell you've seen supernatural you know what a tulpa is i don't remember refresh my memory okay so a tulpa is basically a creature that is invented by uh people's belief in the creature 
Oh yeah. You know, it's it's uh, born out of human fear, mm-hmm. human imagination. Right. Yeah. Maybe okay. it, maybe it's something like that. I don't know. But who? Okay. But who would be the person to right, make it? Right. It would it would have to come from somebody. Like it makes sense if like Robbie and Carol Ann were reading a book about this monster and it comes to their house and terrorizes them. But I I think it's. It's either all the ghosts together that have decided, like they're decided all in one. They had a they, they <laughs> had, had a, a committee meeting. meeting. Right. They had a meeting about they it. They're like, all vote. right, guys, all right, guys, we've had enough of this. Let's scare the <laughs> shit out of these people so we can get our land back. We're going on strike. Or if all of that activity all together awoke this monster beast thing. I don't think we have the answer to that. If I had to pick one. It would definitely be the Voltron ghost theory. I would too. I I think that that's the, the house was just too haunted. Yeah. Oh, that it was, was a haunted, haunted. That was the most haunted house ever. See, but what's funny though is that I'm I'm the kind of person that every podcast I listen to is a horror podcast or a true yeah. crime podcast. Like me too. Things of of nightmares, like actual people's nightmares, and I'm just listening to it, just just taking it all in. We were laughing because at the end of the movie. You know, everything's kind of coming to a head. The ghosts come back with a vengeance and everybody's freaking out. You know, all I can think about is how Diane has to wash her hair again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like the giant skeleton that came through oh the door. God, at that was so corny. It was corny, but it was kind of epic. If I, you know, I don't remember watching this as a kid because I was really young. But if I had, I bet you I shit my pants right about that point. Yeah. Well, then they have that weird horse ghost yeah thing. and the weird spider skeleton yeah thing too. and it it roared like the mgm lion yeah and i mean diane's terrified of it and and watching it as a kid you're like what the fuck is that and you're you're freaked out but as an adult you're like what is that thing i don't even know like and i watch i've, I've looked at like a freeze frame thing of it and i'm like that t- just doesn't make sense of course then you have the throat that's trying to eat them of the beast, right? I guess right. the sphincter of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> the the dad comes back, like I guess he went off to go pack the rest of his stuff from the office because they're leaving and moving because they're like, "Fuck you, you're a bunch of thieves." He comes back to the house and it's terrifying, and so everybody's getting into the car and he can't like get his keys in, and everybody's screaming at him. They're yeah. like, they're like, "But dad, please hurry!" Like she, even Carol Ann's like dad come on hurry up and uh so he finally gets in the car and then dana shows back up and i didn't realize this until a couple years ago either but she had a giant hickey on her neck like that girl got around like for real Well, and there's this joke that she does earlier in the movie where diane's talking about the motel six yeah and she says oh i remember that place and her mom's like what yeah like, yeah, so she's she's getting around. Yep. Oh, yeah, for sure. But then she's screaming and she's like, what's happening? Oh, she gets absolutely fucking traumatized. And Robbie's like, drive away, daddy. Drive away. Yeah. I would have, too. I'd have been like. Nyeow. I think that Dana probably had the best uh, horror movie acting chops in this movie. I mean, she really so? could do. Oh, yeah. She could do the distressed, traumatized, stone faced, shell shocked. Uh, yeah. You know, I just saw my boyfriend get his fucking head cut off uh, kind of thing. <laughs> and she did a great job. I mean, yeah. she was incredibly believable as being traumatized. It just breaks my heart. That's, this was the first 
theatrical movie that she ever did. And it just breaks my heart that she didn't get to see it happen. I'm glad that that douchebag is rotting in jail. Like, fuck you, man. Yeah. Like, thanks a lot. That's just tragic. Yeah, it is really tragic. But we didn't touch on this because I'm, because I'm such a huge fan of the film. I haven't seen the remake and I don't know if I want to. I saw the remake and it's, there's not much point in watching it. Was it bad? I remember being very underwhelmed and not liking it. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on video. And uh, that was before we were all starting to get real tired of remakes. Yeah. You know, it was one of the earlier ones. And so we were still kind of on board with remakes at the time. And uh, I I think that might have been my first disappointing remake. It's just, I don't know. Like I said, maybe, maybe I'm biased because I'm such a huge fan of the original when I saw that they were coming out with a remake, I was just like, come on, like really? And not every horror movie remake is bad. I mean, I'm thinking about like Rob Zombie's Halloween. Oh, I loved it. Me too. I loved it. Yeah. But when it comes to something like this, like I don't hold the same love for Halloween that I do for Poltergeist. I don't know. And, and maybe I just need to watch it, get it over with and, and compare the two and be like, oh, well, okay, it's no big deal. But for me, I just don't want to waste my time sitting there going this is just not as good this is just not as good because that's what's going to happen that's essentially what's going to happen for real so uh you want to do like final thoughts yeah final thoughts about this movie i love it so much i love everything about it i obviously there are some things that you can poke at in this movie but essentially there there's really nothing wrong with this movie and if you've never seen it before i highly recommend going out and finding it and watching it you won't be disappointed and you'll you'll realize what all the hype is about and um then you can when you're listening to this podcast you'll it'll make sense to you because you'll go oh that scene um so what are we what are we doing next oh shit what are we doing next are we doing in bruges next we're doing in bruges next ah good that'll be our christmas episode yeah yeah. It's not really a Christmas movie, but it's set during that time. It's the best you're getting out of us, damn it. I'm not doing a fucking Christmas movie. You can't make us. No. You can't. No. No. And I want to talk about I, I want to talk about Colin Farrell. Yeah, me too. I want to talk about Colin Farrell. I fucking love Colin Farrell. Well, and and I, I just love how I love his sleaziness. He's yeah. a greasy, sleazy son of a bitch. But yeah, so we're going to be doing In Bruges uh, the next time that we come together. Now, we kind of decided that we're going to be releasing these bi-weekly. We're not going to do it every week because we have other things and we have lives. And trying to do all of that together with this is just kind of um, it's just kind of overwhelming. So we just decided to go to bi-weekly. But we're going to, you know, we're still going to be the same fun dumpster fire time, same dumpster fire place. Um same dumpster fire, dumpster fire. Same dumpster fire. It's it's keeping us warm, guys. And you guys are keeping us warm as well. And we appreciate you sticking with us and listening and, and um, you know, share and, and rate and listen. And, and that, that helps us out with making sure that we keep this entertaining for you guys. Uh, now, you can find us on Twitter at Fire Cinema. We're also on Facebook at Dumpster Fire Cinema. Um, we're at DumpsterFireCinema.com. I know right now we're working on t-shirts. Yes. Which is going to be a fun, fun time. They're they're ready to rock. Yeah. You can get them at dfirecinema.threadless.com. Yeah. And I, I wanted to kind of put this out there. We're, we're currently, or I'm currently in the trying to get a, um, not that our website is not legit, 
because it's shit. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. It is. I, I didn't make that. it. I didn't build it or anything. You're not gonna fit me. Sorry, guys who run Libsyn. Your website <laughs> is shit. So, um, M. Schultz from. And that's why we drink podcasts. Oh, I love that show. It I started. Is, you great. turned me on to it. I've been listening to it. It's Aren't great. They amazing. Nikki is completely hooked. Oh, I love those girls. I want to be best friends with them. Anyway, so they're she, fantastic. On her Twitter, she reached out to asking people to if they were wanting. She's trying to get back into graphic design, and if anybody was looking for a website to to reach out to her, and so I did. Um, and so I'm working with her to try and get us a good legit website up that'll have everything that we need on it, all of our links and. We can sell merch on it. We can post pictures. We can everything, anything that we want. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm so, so up for it. I'm pretty excited about that. So just kind of stay tuned as we develop, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we're even on episode four. I mean, really, I'm, I'm a little shocked. It's a, it's been a blast though. I think we've, we've done some really good stuff. I think so. I love it. This like is, it sure is fun. Mm-hmm. It's good to it's good to chat about some movies, you know. Yeah, especially ones that kind of have fallen under the radar. I mean, because we haven't really done any modern movies. We haven't done any movies that have come out this year. We've done movies that have been like in the eighties and nineties so far. You know, I just figure we keep doing movies we love, and when we start running out of steam, then we'll do whatever fucking Avatar film is out by then. Oh, please no! I I'll be absent for that episode. It'll just be you. By then we'll be getting paid for it. They'll be they'll be giving us like uh you know, they'll be giving us millions of dollars to review Avatar. Give us billions. Mil- give us millions of dollars. I'll say Avatar is the best fucking movie ever made. <laughs> I'll say Avatar the last airbender is the best movie ever oh, made for a million dollars. Aaron, that hurt me. Just give me. it to me right now. I'm a whore. That hurt me. That hurt me. Anyway. I'll say M. Night Shyamalan is the Steven Spielberg of our time. Anyway, once we've moved past that blasphemy. Yeah, no, I didn't mean that. Um, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, we're so glad you uh joined us. We didn't hear from our French listeners yet. No. Uh, but you guys gotta get a hold of us. Come France. On. Reach out. Viva la France. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, thank you for listening to Dumpster Fire Cinema. You guys have a great and spooky evening. Bye, guys. Bye. Ouch. You all right? I hit the light. (laughs) Now they're going to haunt you. Thank you for listening to Dumpster Fire Cinema. Be sure to tell your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. This house has many hearts. (laughs) That wasn't good. Give me yours. This house has many hearts. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.